Um, well, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Uh, if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading the NIV, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is the reading of God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we start. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. May you open our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Um, I'm just going to apologize in advance. Uh, I woke up this morning without a voice, and um, I feel fine, but... I don't know why. Um, so if I lose my voice at some point, um, someone can come up here and, and read the notes. But uh, yeah, hopefully uh, the Spirit will sustain uh, me through this sermon. But uh, last week we launched a new series in the book of Acts called The Spirit-Filled Church. And over the next five months, we're going to be looking at the origin story of the church, capital C, before the church became an institution before the church became a political weapon, before the church became a one-hour event on a Sunday morning, when it was just a fledgling group of people doing life together in the kingdom of God. And, and as we find ourselves today in what I believe is such a pivotal moment in the story of Christianity, but also the unique story God is writing here at Citizens, I believe we have to go back to where it all started. We have to get back to the why of the church the heart of God's mission, right? And if you were here last week, we talked about what that mission is. It's the mission that Jesus gives to his followers in Acts 1 as he ascends to the right hand of the Father, this mission to be his witnesses, to be living testimonies of the gospel, first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And he basically tells his followers in Acts 1, look, there's a lot that you're not gonna know about your life. There's a lot that you're not going to know about how everything is going to turn out. But here's what you will know. That from this moment on, you will have one singular purpose in life. 
to show people who I am and what I've done. That's it. That is what you will know to be my witnesses. You know, this morning I shared that, you know, every time I have the opportunity to baptize children, my heart is so heavy for the next generation because I think about the stories that they're going to get swept up in and I think about how much pressure they're going to have being raised in this cultural moment where people are going to tell them you have to be this and you have to be that and you have to go here and you have to accomplish this and your life has to matter and this is what you have to do for meaning and significance and worth. And what I loved about Acts 1 is Jesus telling his disciples, look, you're going to have one purpose in life. Even if you forget everything else, your one purpose in life is to know me and to make me known. And that's such a powerful statement. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to his followers. And he tells them, You're, the power to carry out this mission is not going to come from yourself. You're going to receive the power to carry out this mission when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the passage we're looking at today in Acts 2 is that very moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people of God at Pentecost, giving birth to the church. So this is the beginning of the church. Now, at the end of Acts 1, the disciples have no idea when the Spirit is going to come or how the Spirit is, is going to come. All they have is Jesus' guarantee that the Spirit will come. And in the 10 days between his ascension and between the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, Jesus tells his followers, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait, right? And you could preach an entire sermon on that fact alone that Jesus has his disciples go back to the place of their deepest trauma, where they just witnessed the horrific execution of their dear teacher, leader, and friend. And it's this reminder that it's often when we find ourselves waiting in the darkest places and in the darkest seasons of our lives that we have the most profound encounters with the Spirit of God. Sometimes we don't even know what we're waiting for, just like the disciples didn't exactly know what they should be looking for. But when the Spirit came, everyone in the room knew it because everything changed. We read it in verses 2 and 3. It says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Wind and fire. Okay, I was looking throughout this passage for some reference to earth because I wanted to call this sermon Earth, Wind, and Fire, which would have been awesome, but the Bible doesn't always give me what I want. So we got wind and fire, okay? Well, what is the significance of wind and fire? Well, the word for wind there is a word that also means breath, and it's a word used in the Old Testament to signify the Spirit. We see this imagery on the first page of the Bible in Genesis 1, when we read that when everything was formless and void and dark, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, was blowing over the waters. We see it in Ezekiel 37, when the Spirit of God breathes new life into dry bones. So every time this imagery of wind and spirit and breath are used together, it's meant to signify something dead coming back to life. It's meant to signify God creating something doing something new and creating it out of nothing. And so when we read that a sound like the blowing of a violent wind swept through the room, we know that this is symbolizing that God is up to something new. He's creating something. 
The atmosphere has changed because the Spirit of the Lord is there. And I want to ask you today, is there something that feels dead in your life? A marriage, a friendship, a dream, something that you feel is beyond repair. I want you to know that the Spirit of God is in the business of breathing new life into dry bones, bringing beauty out of chaos. This is who he is. So first, wind. The second sign is fire. We read that tongues of fire came to rest on each of them. Now, fire is also very significant in the Old Testament because fire was always a symbol of God's presence. When he leads the Israelites through the wilderness, he shows up to them as a pillar of fire. When God comes down from Mount Sinai, he comes down in fire. In Exodus 3, when God calls out to Moses, he calls out to him from what? A burning bush. And in that story, it's very interesting because God calls out to him. Moses comes near the bush and God says, stop, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because where you're standing, the place you're standing is holy ground. And the idea was that you can't get any closer. You can't touch the utter holiness of God and not be killed and not be completely consumed. But here's what's so powerful about Acts 2. It says the fire came to rest on each of them. God's presence that used to be localized in a bush or in a pillar or in a tabernacle now came to rest on the heads of all of Jesus' followers. God's presence was no longer out there, but it was in here. This God who humans could once only access in a very specific way through specific people, through specific rituals, was now accessible to all believers everywhere because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Do you realize what kind of a power lives in you? Something that grieves me so much about followers of Jesus and Christians is that we live such powerless lives. We live like we're still in bondage. We live like we're still slaves to sin. You know, um, my son and I, he's five, um, and he's a big boy, and um, every night we have this ritual where we eat dinner, and you know, he'll take a break, and then out of nowhere he'll say, Dad, it's battle time, okay? And that just means like we're gonna fight. Okay, and we're supposed to like start wrestling and, you know, we're like, we're fighting and, you know, every night we do this, right? I don't know why. He loves hitting me for some reason, okay? Um, once in a while, our seven-year-old daughter, she wants to get in the mix, okay? And, you know, like she's, it's funny because older siblings, I feel like they will always have this like mental edge on a younger sibling, like no, matter how, like, no matter how much of a size or strength discrepancy there is, there's something about the older sibling that just like, just like will, like has their will with their younger sibling. And so my daughter will like get in the mix and she'll sit on my son and sit on his back. And he'll be like, no, no, it hurts. She's hurting me. It's crushing me. Like I can't breathe. And he's just like constantly, like he looks like he's in pain. And I'm like, Jack, Jack, Jack. Just stand up. You're so much bigger than her. Just that. He's like, no, she's crushing me. She's crushing me. And I'm just like, just stand up. And he just stands up. She flies off him. And you see his face like, I'm a powerful man. You know, I'm a really strong human being. 
And I think like a lot of times, like as Christians, we go through life and we're just crushed by shame and crushed by sin, not realizing that the Holy Spirit, the power of the living God lives inside of us, giving us strength, right? The strength to resist temptation, to overcome addiction, the power to forgive those who've wronged us, the power to love and to serve and to resist the lies of the enemy. We have the power of the living God dwelling in and through us. The fire came to rest on each of them, wind and fire. Well, what happens next? It's pretty wild, okay, because we read that there were Jews from every nation gathered together in one place, and all of a sudden, everyone starts speaking in a different language. Okay, it would literally be like today, we're in worship, we're gathered together, and all of a sudden, every person in this room starts speaking in a different native tongue, okay? It's, it's weird, it's strange, Okay, and you know, a lot of people read Acts 2, and I think uh, the, the temptation is to think that this entire passage is about the supernatural gift of tongues, right? To make it all about the miracle itself. And, you know, I won't go into this in too much detail today, but um, there are a lot of differing views on the spiritual gift of tongues in the church. We did a sermon on spiritual gifts last August. Um, if you want to go on our podcast, you can definitely check it out. But here's what I will say about this. I think to make this particular moment in Acts 2 all about these people somehow being able to speak all these different languages would be to miss its significance altogether. I think sometimes we focus so much on the sign that we miss the very thing the sign is pointing to. Right? Well, what is this pointing to? Because there's a lot going on in this story. Like when you actually take the time to read through what's happening, it's like, you get a sound that's like a violent rushing wind. You get what looks like tongues of fire coming to rest on the heads of everyone in the room. And then everyone just starts speaking in a different language. Like what is all of that pointing to? And last week we talked about this. We said the Holy Spirit has had one move from the very beginning. It's to point people to the supremacy, worth, and beauty of Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit shows up and descends on the people of God and everyone starts speaking these different languages, he must be telling us something about Jesus, about who Jesus is. So what is he telling us? I'm going to give us three things. First, I believe the Holy Spirit is showing us that Jesus is a redeemer, a redeemer who takes what is broken and turns it into something beautiful. And let me explain. This is where the Bible is so awesome, how everything is interconnected. Most scholars believe that the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost is actually a reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Okay, if you know the story of the Tower of Babel, it's very similar. People are gathered in one place, except they're not waiting for God. They say, come, let's build ourselves a city. We want to build something for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves, for our glory, for our name. And so God does come down in Genesis 11, but he comes down in disgust. And he confuses their language, and then he scatters the people all over the face of the earth. Okay, you see the parallel? In both stories, people start speaking different languages, and they're scattered over the face of the earth. 
But whereas at Babel, people were pursuing their own glory and their own fame, at Pentecost, it says people were declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. So God takes what is broken at Babel and he turns it into something beautiful at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is gathering people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, not to make much of themselves, but to make much of him. And I think this is so profound because I think it tells us two things. Number one, I think it shows us a picture of what true community looks like. Um, it's not a community where everyone thinks, acts, votes exactly the same, but it's a community that maintains and dignifies the uniqueness of every individual and creates space for a diversity of perspectives and personalities all working together to bear witness to the beauty and worth of Jesus. It's interesting because this is supposed to be a reversal of Babel, so you would think that everyone in Acts 2 would start speaking the same language, but they don't. They're speaking different languages, right? As if to show us that there's something about our differences that God wants to dignify, right? As if to show us that there's something about getting people together with different stories, different wirings, different backgrounds to declare the wonders of God and then being scattered as God's witnesses to the ends of the earth. There's something powerful about that. If you have ever felt like, you know, and I hear this a lot, if you have ever felt like, I don't know if I belong at this church because of the way I look, because of the way I talk or the way I act, or because of my life stage or my demographic bracket, I want you to know that that's exactly why you do belong at this church. Jesus is not after uniformity. Jesus is after unity. But the second thing this moment reminds us is that there is nothing about your story that God cannot use to bring glory to himself. This is what he does from Babel to Pentecost. When we decide to follow Jesus, we're not erasing our past. We're not erasing our trauma. We're not erasing our mistakes. We're placing our trust in a God who takes all that is broken and turns it into something beautiful. In one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah 18, God tells Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house, and I'm going to give you a message there. And it says that Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and saw the potter working at the wheel. And he says, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. And then God said, can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. In Acts 2, God takes what was marred at Babel, he redeems it, and then he scatters his people again, but this time with a new calling and a new purpose for his glory and for his fame. He's a redeemer. So first, he's a redeemer. The second thing the Holy Spirit in this scene shows us about Jesus is that Jesus is a boundary breaker. In Luke, uh, Luke lists 15 different nations here to signify the scope of the reach of the mission of God. And the list of regions that you see in verses 9 to 11, they're significant because they pretty much cover all the regions to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. As if to signify that there is no place Jesus is unwilling to go to seek out the lost and the needy. And the question I think that confronts all of us today is, is there a place you aren't willing to go? 
Is there a person in your life where you say, no, they're outside of the reach of God's grace? They're outside of the reach of forgiveness and love. That person's never going to change. Wait, he voted for who? She did what? No, no, not me. What barriers have you put up that have kept you from being an embodiment of the gospel in your home, in your workplace, on your college campus? Because what we see here in Acts 2 is that the gospel breaks every boundary of race, culture, ethnicity, and class. In fact, the very heart of the gospel story is a God who crosses every boundary, who breaks every barrier to bring his people home. God made him sin who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was no place Jesus was unwilling to go. No place. So we see Jesus the redeemer. We see Jesus the boundary breaker. And finally we see Jesus the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to chase after the one. You know, there's a really subtle detail in the passage that's easy to gloss over, but this one got me for some reason all this week. And it's in verse 7. When the crowd hears all the different languages being spoken, they say something really interesting. They say, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And it's a peculiar question, but it's a really important question. Okay, and that detail is so significant because in that time, Galileans were the low-class folks. These were people who others saw as uneducated, ignorant country bumpkins. And yet, it's the Galileans who are speaking in these different languages. In fact, in John 7, when people are wondering, could this Jesus of Galilee be the Messiah? They're like, there's no way, because what good could possibly come out of Galilee? And so it's very significant that it was Galileans who were drawing the crowd in Acts 2. And what you realize is that God is always moving toward the least of these. And he's always using the weak, the insignificant, and those whom you would least expect to be his vessels. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, For God has chosen the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and he has chosen the weak of the world to shame the mighty. Maybe today you're sitting here and you're wondering, what has my life come to? Maybe you're wondering, man, like, I feel like everyone is passing me by. I feel like everyone is making moves. I feel like their careers are burgeoning. I feel like everyone's getting married. Everyone's having kids. Everyone's living their dreams. What about me, God? And perhaps you are here today and you feel increasingly small and insignificant because this city, let me tell you, has a way of doing that to you. But I want you to know that God not only sees you, but if this passage tells us anything, it's that God has a special plan for your life. God wants to use you in ways you would never expect because this is who he has always been. Acts 2 is a monumental moment in redemptive history. It's literally the beginning of the church. And God's chosen vessels in this moment are none other than the Galileans. The world may leave you behind, but let me tell you, God will never leave you behind because he's a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one.
And so let me close today by giving all of us a choice. I believe we have a choice. Today in our first service, we had three families and one brother make a choice. And that same choice is ours to make as well. Will we place our trust and our hope in Jesus, the Redeemer, the boundary breaker, the good shepherd, or will we choose our own way? You know, the ending of our text today is so anticlimactic. You know, you have this miracle happening in plain sight. You literally have people's lives being changed, people speaking in all different languages. And you know how the passage ends? You have a group of people who are like, they must be drunk. It's like the Bible is so honest about stuff like this. It's like, Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And I think it's such a realistic depiction of how so many view the church. Like, let's be honest, when you step back and think about it, so many of the things we do are weird. Like, why do people wake up early, some people really early, every Sunday morning to come to a high school auditorium to sing songs and hear someone preach about an ancient book? Why do we sprinkle water on babies and adults? Why do we get together with small groups of people during the week, people who we barely know and bear our souls to them and share about our lives? Why do we do these things? Why do we serve? Why do we forgive? Why do we sacrifice? But the Apostle Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So where are you today? Will you open yourself up to the Spirit of God moving in your life and in the world, or will you turn and walk the other way? Because as Pastor John Tyson in New York likes to say, God comes where he's wanted. So will you be those who allow the Spirit to take a hold of your life or will you be those on the outside making fun, scoffing, turning the other way? Jesus today stands at the door and knocks. Will you open the door and will you allow him to change your life? Let's pray. I just want to give us a, a few moments to let that word sink in. And though the scene in this auditorium is very different from Acts 2, I want us to know that the same spirit that descended on this group of believers, that same spirit is here now. That same spirit who came as wind and fire to rest on the heads of each person in that room is here now. I know that many of us are in seasons or moments of waiting. And I want you to know that these are the moments where we can have the most profound encounters with the Spirit of God. So I want to give us this moment 
as Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? Will you let him be Lord of your life? Gracious God, we need a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in this place, in this community, in this city. Lord, I know that there are so many broken people sitting in this room, so many people waiting in darkness, so many people feeling small or insignificant. But God, in this moment, may we know that the power of the living God, a redeemer who takes what is broken and turns it into be something beautiful, a boundary breaker, someone who would chase us to the ends of the earth, a good shepherd, one who will leave the 99 to go after the one. That, the power of that God resides in us. So, Lord, help us to open our hearts to become aware of your presence. Help us to know what power we have access to. Help us to stop living in bondage, to stop living powerlessly. But may we live in the power of the Holy Spirit that is always available to us. We thank you for this word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.